Sign that trailhead register because today we have a guest with as much national park experience than 99.9% of the people on this planet. Hi, my name is Riley Smith and today Broken Laces is excited to have Steve Yopes, former deputy superintendent of Yellowstone National Park and employee of several others. He's going to take us behind the scenes of working at the most wonderful office in the country. Steve takes us through his history, his perspective on where our parks stand today, and gives us some great stories from his time in the national parks. And of course, we have Trails and Ales, where Steve takes us to the best that the Tetons have to offer. Steve is a great guy to know, and I'm excited to share his story. So let's skip the visitor center and right to Steve's office. Hey, Steve. Hey, Riley. How are you? It's good to hear your voice again. It's It's been a year since we formally met at a really cool event, uh, the Parks and Tech Hackathon. Um, so yeah, it's, it's good to talk to you. Yeah, it, it, I'm glad you contacted me and about doing this. Um, I, you, were, uh, you were my winning team. You you were our mentor and we yeah. won and that's a story for another day. But it was a really fun event, and it seems it seems like you're staying involved despite being retired from the national park system in in different little events like that. Uh, I am staying involved. Uh, the hackathon that we did almost a year ago now uh, certainly was uh, something different for me, but uh, something I really enjoy and something I really enjoyed being around a lot of, uh, innovative, uh, thinkers and a lot of enthusiasm regarding, uh, national parks and the challenges that the national parks face. Right. And, and just to not dive too deep into that, but it was this event in the Bay area where we brought together, all the the data analysts and the programmers and the coders and the the business consultants and and the goal was just to think of how to differently innovate with technology in our parks. So I'll put a link up on the website to to some of the stories that came out of that. But that was just a, a fun event, and I'm so glad that we participated and, and got to meet you. Likewise, yeah. I'd, let's go back to your days at Virginia Tech, and you're getting a civil engineering degree. And do you know that you want to get into work with the parks? Do you stumble into it, into an internship? And then just kind of how that story continued to evolve to the point where you you legitimately knew you were going to be a career servant of our national park system. Well, thanks for asking that. I My story, uh, when I was uh, getting my degree at Virginia Tech, probably not unlike others and maybe how their career starts, um, I went to Virginia Tech number one, to get a degree in engineering, and number two, Virginia Tech had what they called a cooperative education program where after your freshman year, you were teamed up with a company or a government agency, and then you traded quarters, a work quarter for a school quarter for the next three years. And uh, so I headed into the uh, great unknown of uh, hoping to get a job with Bethlehem Steel uh, in their structural design Mm. uh, department. And um, fortunately, I'll put it that way, they turned me down. <laughs> yeah. right, right. And the next shot was from my co-op advisor saying, hey, there's a, a, a possibility working for the National Park Service in their design office in Washington, D.C. And my first question I know was the National Park Service, what do they do? 
So I started working in uh, January of 1971. Seems a long time ago in some ways and not that long ago in others in a design office uh, that was providing design services, project management, uh, architecture, landscape architecture, contracting, engineering for all the parks uh, in the National Park Service at that time, essentially uh, be, uh, east of the Mississippi River. And so I started out uh, as a draft person uh, on a surveying team uh, and um, did that for a few work quarters. Gotcha. And so you you end up do you end up starting to develop a, a want, a desire to continue this work, or is it just at this point, you know, helping pay the monthly bills? Is your interest starting to get peaked my, at this point? My interest is definitely starting to get peaked. The best thing they did was moving to Denver so that I could experience for the first time the Colorado Rockies. And I loved being outdoors, uh, hiking, nice. backpacking. Um, even a little fishing, uh, and just being in that part of the world and then being able to be involved in projects, but being exposed to, uh, America's natural and cultural heritage, uh, really resonated and the support I got from friends and family. Um, you know, this looks like it is a great opportunity, Steve, uh, you should think about, you know, pursuing this. And I did. Uh, are you basically taking control of what you want to do? Are you just getting placed at parks? As you mentioned, going to Denver, are you saying, I want to partake in these types of projects? Like how, how do you start? I don't know if you're conscientiously moving up the career ladder, if you will, or if you're just saying, yes, I'll do that. And you just kind of continue to, to move through the system in that way. Well, that's a great question. And, and I certainly have, I think I, 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 I took a passive control of my career, if you will, but my heart was with the Park Service. And so I joined uh, the Park Service full time. I never had a bad assignment. I had uh, that first tour in Yellowstone that started in uh, May of 79, went through the late eight, 1988. I actually had three different positions, which is a great advantage to working in a large park is you can move to another uh you know, uh, career or, or or another engineering position in this case uh, to broaden, um, and I did that with the idea that you know these are great opportunities. I'm here; I should take them. Um, work for a different supervisor, work on different types of things, with the idea that it would help me in the future with the potential of being what's called a division chief or a park manager position. And and you know and that that held true. I moved on. To become chief of maintenance, which is chief of facility management, if you will, mm-hmm. in Rocky Mountain National Park in Colorado, uh, about sixty miles, sixty-five miles northeast of Denver, northwest, excuse me, of Denver, um, and so be, became a true uh, participant in park management as a member of a management team, a leadership team for Rocky, um, and then from then on to deputy superintendent at Grand Teton National Park. By now, you probably realize that well, this this guy right. this guy picked the great places to go to. <laughs> it was not all by design. Um, it just opportunities presented themselves. Um, some opportunities that presented themselves didn't pan out. Others did, and so here I am at Grand Teton National Park as deputy superintendent, really overseeing a lot of the park operation, not just maintenance. 
um, not just design and construction that takes place, but also emergency services and science and research and resource management and, and business services, which is what you know things that the concessioners in the parks are doing and overseeing that. And then, of course, education and information and interpretation as well. And got my feet wet um, and really enjoyed that uh, more diverse uh, park operation experience. I actually served as the acting superintendent at Grand Teton National Park for about 15 months. Uh, once the gentleman, Jack Nichols, that I worked for and hired me, uh, went went on his way to another job and then retired. Um, I did want to become superintendent at, at, at uh, Grand Teton. It didn't work out. Uh, and then I had an opportunity to move north back to Yellowstone in 2003 mm-hmm. Again, as the chief of maintenance or chief of facility management, uh, I was doing more than just tr- traditional division chief. I was helping with other so aspects of running that big place, uh, that that giant aircraft carrier, if you will, of the Park Service. And that led to an opportunity to apply for mm-hmm. and be selected as the deputy superintendent, which is essentially running the park day to day. For the last six years of my career, um, the best job I had. That's a perfect segue to, and, and thank you for kind of outlining the the journey there. Uh, a, a good segue to you've achieved this this deputy superintendent status, and even when you are the acting superintendent at, at Grand Tetons, of you're you're basically the mayor of a city, if you will. It's a federally owned land, and it, it is you who is responsible for all those things you manage from education to emergency services to infrastructure, capital projects. I'm assuming that's a, like a lot of office job type of work, but I'm assuming you're also out and about being that that is what two, two plus million acres of land that you're, you're actively managing and thinking about. So I, I'm not sure what the question was in there, but it just seems like you're, you're basically the mayor well, I, of that no, I place. Think you, I, I, I get your drift, so to speak. Um, it is like, a, yeah. I, I, I yeah. characterize it more like a county than I do a city. But, it, but, but you know, gotcha. we have, you know, uh, you know, fire department. We have uh, a police department, if you will. Um, we have education, um, business services. We have contracts with businesses that run, you know, uh, you know, lodges and, and kitchens, you know, and, and so there's, it is a great responsibility. And before I go any further, I would say that, you know, I was well-trained, fortunately, for the job, both by how my organization trained me, Park Service, as well as things that I took the initiative on. And, uh, you know, and and so I was, I felt I was prepared for it. But, you know, the other thing I would add is uh, what an incredible mission that an agency like the National Park Service has. And as I mentioned earlier, you are protecting America's natural and cultural heritage. I mean, national parks in, in America are, are, are essentially synonymous. Protection of public land. Um, you can talk about the heroes, of, you know, from the Muirs to the, to the Roosevelts, et cetera, and many, many more. Um, but to be part of that um, movement, if you will, and to then provide that opportunity for citizens of this country as well as the world, to come see and experience and watch their faces. Um, it all adds to that reward, if you will, and that responsibility. And at the end of the day, when it's been a tough day of dealing with tough issues, whether that's in, 
you know, employee relations or community uh, adjacent to the park that you're at odds with regarding, you know, the direction that you're taking. Um, you still have that incredible public service, if you will, that you're providing. And it's, it's very rewarding. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just a, just a, a few numbers here. I mean, when you think about a place like Yellowstone, it's a big park and geographic and, you know, it would take me an hour and a half uh, drive to get to um, an area like Old Faithful from Mammoth Hot Springs in the north part of the park where park headquarters is to visit with staff to, to, to deal with issues. Um, it's a park of size, both with regard to staff as well as to, you know, pretty high visitation, four and a half million visitors a year last year. Um, but it's also, you know, complex with regard to geography um, and climate and and resources and, of course, the geothermal resources. And, you know, I like to call Yellowstone the North American Serengeti with the wildlife show that's there that the people come to see. So anyway, the, what I'm getting at is that it is uh, you've got um, about 25,000 people living in the park, i.e. overnight, that's employees as well as visitors. You know, you have 2,500 hotel and lodge rooms, about 2,200 campsites, uh, 500 miles of paved road, uh, a lot of parking, (laughs) uh, water and wastewater systems, uh, visitor centers, employee housing, et cetera. So it's, it's, it's a big large inventory as I use, you know, the technical term for that is we got a lot of old stuff (laughs) Um, because it's, because Yellowstone was the world's first park. Uh, The army ran Yellowstone from 1886 to 1916 because there was not a national park service. So we have that history, that military history, if you will, just look at our uniforms (laughs) and you can see there must be some tie here to the to the U.S. Army or something like that. So anyway, I'll stop there um, and just, you know, end with saying um, it was challenging. um, But for every challenge, there was a reward, uh, either immediate or later on. And, uh, you know, some people, many people ask me, you know, what would you change? And I would say probably not much. If anything, you know, what would you do differently? And I said, I can't think of anything I would do differently. You know, certainly there are some things like uh, maybe how I reacted to certain things I would want to change or what I would stand up and defend. Um, uh, I would do it with a little more passion and a, a little more immediacy maybe than I did in the past. But other than that, I mean, man, uh, I'm a lucky guy. <laughs> yeah. And so I would love to because I've seen it in person uh the fact that you're a great storyteller. And I would assume that when people find out that you worked at Yellowstone for how long you did, that they immediately say, like, what's the best story that you've got? Or what's the most memorable wildlife encounter you have? Or what's the dumbest thing that you've seen a visitor do? And I'm sure you have countful of stories. But what's, if I were to say story time with Steve, what's what's kind of your go-to story of your time at the Yellowstone National Park. And maybe we just created a new segment for all these future podcasts where it's just story time with Steve is, <laughs> is what I'm kind of, it's kind of what I'm thinking right now. Oh boy. Yeah. that That's a challenge, Riley. And I appreciate yeah, that. So, yeah. Well, I'm here's what I'm going to do. It's a two part story and it, and it has to do with a very personal side 
and then with family, and then the other one is with with a visitor. But it's all kind of wrapped up into the theme. And uh, my wife and I had been married two years when we moved to Yellowstone from Virginia. Um, and uh, about a year after, less than a year after we uh, arrived in Yellowstone, we started a family, uh, a, a daughter in 80, and then a son came along in 83, and another son came along in 86. They were all born in Bozeman, Montana. They lived mm. in Yellowstone National Park, and they lived in other national parks. So therefore, having a young family, like many young families come to Yellowstone and other parks, we uh, began to experience Yellowstone with our children, through our children. And um, the reward has been the deep appreciation they have for public lands, for natural resources, for natural processes, um, how you behave uh, as a human on this earth. Um, So now I'll fast forward to a grandson um, who, when he was about five, is standing with us at Old Faithful Geyser. So we're, we're continuing the tradition of our family being in Yellowstone. Um, we were still in Yellowstone, but it was my second tour. So my grandson, Christian, is is uh, standing there at the, the big you know, semi-circular boardwalk with uh, 3,000 other people watching, waiting, waiting, and then watching Old Faithful go off. And, and he had, this was not the first time. He had done it several times. And he was mesmerized, you know, being able to visit Yellowstone, certainly more than most people. Um, and it, as, as, as the guys are starting to, um, to slow down and not be as high and it's, it, you know, it's, it's over, it's, it's nearing the end of that eruption cycle, et cetera. People start walking away. And my grandson, bless his heart, blurts out, where are you people going? It's not over. <laughs> <laughs> so we have another champion of the park, somebody who understands, and, and uh, you wanted them to appreciate the fact that you stay until the eruption is totally over. Now, there's a variety of pe- reasons why people leave. Okay, now the third part of that, sorry, sorry there's three parts. Of that. The third part of that story, again, is <clears throat> at least once a year, I would run into um, you know just a serendipitous, meeting with a, with a family that was uh, obviously a multi-generational family. And the story would go something like this. Usually the, the grandfather or maybe grand, great-grandfather, more than likely from within the greater Yellowstone region, um, Bozeman, Idaho Falls, um, Cheyenne, uh, Cody, wherever, would, would uh, you know, we'd strike up a conversation and there would be at least three or four generations there. And uh, the grandfather, again, the great grandfather, would talk about when he first came to Yellowstone Park in 1916 or 1920 right. or 1930. And I had learned that sometimes, you know, a conversation like that starts going about like how much it's changed or what's different or they don't do this anymore, whatever. Those weren't the ones that I remember, Riley. The ones I remember were where the grandfather, the patriarch, if you will, the family would talk about how much that experience meant to him back 60, 70, 80 years ago. And therefore, he's been bringing his family and now it's his grandchildren or his great grandchildren to come to Yellowstone to experience what a place like Yellowstone is all about. So that's that's my story <laughs> for you. 
If you enjoy Broken Laces, consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. Tell a fellow friend about the show or share on your favorite social media site, preferably the one where you have the most friends. There's no team here at Broken Laces, just me and I could use the most help spreading the word about the show. There's no team here at Broken Laces, just me and I could use the most help spreading the word about the show. If you'd like to support Broken Laces further, you can do so at patreon.com broken laces. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash broken laces. Pledging as much as you'd like to help offset the cost of producing the show. Consider it like you're buying me coffee or better yet, sharing a granola bar on the trail. Right now, this is a hobby, but I dream about working in the outdoors industry and this could be the gateway. Thanks for listening and back to the show. So I'd love to, to switch gears and, and chat with you about the future of the national park system and the challenges it faces. I, I'm sure you have in your mind a, a load or a laundry list of things that you would like to see the national park system take up. But what's kind of your top three, we'll call it, of things that the national park system should be addressing going forward? Uh, great question, Riley. Uh, I, I'd say number one is the deferred maintenance backlog. Um, the Park Service um, historically has not received a level of funding uh, that I would say is commensurate with the responsibility of taking care of campgrounds and roads and trails and other facilities like that uh, to the level that they should be. And as a result of that, that routine cyclical maintenance, if you will, has uh, been underfunded and led to a deficiency, if you will, a backlog of uh, work that is now more in the realm of uh, everything from uh, repair and replacement and rehabilitation to replacement of a facility uh, in order to effectively serve uh, future generations of visitors to national parks. Uh, There are bipartisan funding uh, scenarios that have been proposed in the Congress in the last year, year and a half that are promising. Um, but the bottom line is, is that uh, there is essentially 12 billion, that's with a B, work that needs to take place in all types of assets and parks, facilities, in order to bring them up or back up to a maintainable standard. And then the routine annual funding for maintenance, but also all other aspects of park operations is at inadequate. And it's... It's showing, if you will. It's showing on what a park can and can't do anymore, uh, whether it's Yellowstone or other parks. So that certainly is the first challenge is, uh, number one, deferred maintenance funding, but then number two, park operations funding. Mm -hmm. The second is, uh, I would say, is um, an understanding in this country that uh, parks are still very relevant to our natural and cultural heritage but I think the support um, from the citizens of the U.S. is waning. And I think part of that goes back to how much time people spend in the outdoors, not in national parks, but just how much time they spend outdoors. And we're losing this connection with being outdoors, being in nature, whether that's a city park, a county park or a na- national park. I spent most of my childhood rambling around in San Mateo, California, county parks Nature Center called Coyote Point, et cetera. Um, Less people in this country, um, younger people especially, are taking advantage of that. 
on on that note, is is visitation plateaued then in in these parks, or do you think it's just a generational? you know, thing where the, the youngins aren't getting out and we're just still getting more of, of those who had been to the national parks as kids or more international visitors. Am I, am I right in that? Do you, do you think it's just a generational thing? I think it's a generational thing. And, and I I think what we're losing is, is an understanding and an appreciation. Therefore, I think that what that could very well mean in the future is less support for preserving these public lands, whether it be parks, forests, you know, Bureau of Land Management, uh, National Wildlife Refuges, whatever it is, less appreciation as this understanding and appreciation is lost, if you will. Um, but I think visitation, <laughs> and now you've touched on the on the third one. So anyway, uh, basically, um, educate you know, uh, youth programs, uh, environmental education are significant a significant need that the National Park Service can provide. And then the visitation, that's, you know, that may turn up to be number one or these are all equal as far as issues. But visitation in national parks has, has, has risen dramatically, especially in the last five years. Um, Yellowstone and, and you, we usually use an annual visitation number to to characterize that four and a half million visitors to Yellowstone in 2018 uh, or maybe slightly under that. But let's just say four and a half. And um, 10 years ago, it was three and a half. Um, the impact that that has on services, that that has on visitor experience, that that has on the resources, is uh, is being seen. It's it's not just you know it, it's not just one of these things where where okay well it's just a number. I mean you obviously you look for impacts. That many more cars that are on the road from West Entrance um, in West Yellowstone, Montana to Old Faithful, and the congestion, uh, the wildlife jam, traffic jams. Uh, the people pulling off to the side of the road, creating their own parking, uh, if you will, on adjacent to the edge of the road at some of these world class geyser basins. Those are that it's a big issue. And the sure. Park Service, it keeps it, it keeps being asked, you know, what are you going to do about it? You know, and um, you've got the regional uh, regional visitors to parks that visit the parks at least once, if more, if not more than that per year. And then you've got other visitors, um, and this is where the issue kind of gets more complex. Then you have people who it's a once-in-a-lifetime visit to Yellowstone National Park. Who's going to be more tolerant of waiting in line, uh, a traffic line through the entrance station for three hours and getting, you know, I think the once-in-a-lifetime is going to say, well, this is just part of the deal. And yet, so you have this complexity uh, with regard to, um, you know, what is a social tolerance, if you will, versus what is a resource uh, tolerance of this amount of visitation. Right. Uh, it's it's controversial uh, because pro-use or communities around parks, you know, that that contingency, if you are that, excuse me, that contingent of, uh, of, of advocates for parks see an, the issue a bit differently as far as, you know, you know, the first thing people ask is, well, when are you going to start placing limits? you know, uh, on the number of people that can enter a park like Yellowstone on a daily basis. And, you know, my response to that um, more recently has been, we're probably headed in a direction, something like that, or the park services. However, it's not park-wide. It's not so much how many come through the five entrance stations of Yellowstone. It's what areas of the park they visit, 
And so part of this is changing the visitor experience long before they even get the Yellowstone, uh, changing their expectations, understanding that you may not want to go to Old Faithful, depending on what your travel route is. You may not want, you know, what, how about going there or how about staying there, you know, overnight and then spending the evening in the Old Faithful area? Um, there needs to be more of that type of, I hate to use the term, but kind of social engineering, if you will, um, because it's going to take a while for the National Park Service to be able to, number one, come up with the right numbers, and then number two, defend both on a visitor experience as well as from a resource standpoint, why visits, visits to this area or that area or that park as a whole. Right. You have this um, confluence of, of the visitation affecting the the maintenance backlog, as you mentioned, while trying to provide equitable you know, visitation to everybody. And so not raising the prices either um, so that, that everybody has a chance and yet, yet still being kind of that regional ecosystem to help support the things that we love about that park. So it's an, it's an interesting kind of knot to, to untangle and, and one that I see uh, the three you mentioned all kind of interface with each other. And with that being said, I yes. loved for my kind of last question for you, to ask you, is that the reason why we're not adding more national parks at, at a rate that we were once upon a time? It, it seems like the last one being Pinnacles in 2013, and I don't even know the one before that, it seems like we might be hitting the, the plateau of what we can add. I, d- I don't know if you have a perspective or a background on on why. The part, well, I think I know that the Park Service has gone through these eras of, you know, you think about 1872. Um, to, um, let's say, 1910 and Yellowstone and Rainier and Olympic and Yosemite and these incredible um, crown jewels, as they're called sometimes, of the national park system. And that was in an era um, where there wasn't a whole lot of human occupation around these areas. (laughs) And therefore, um, it was timing. You know, planning is important, but timing is everything. so let's fast forward. So, so then there's the era of, uh, you know, urban parks, uh, cultural sites. I mean, the Park Service had a, the Center for Performing Arts, uh, Wolf Trap Farm Park and the Filene Performing Arts Center outside of Washington, D.C. I mean, wow. Um, so I think that the quality of areas added as well as the types of areas um, have added to an incredible diversity where the National Park Service today is not just these parks that I mentioned earlier, these these uh, national parks per se, although they're very important and they certainly carry the day uh, in the Congress and, and with the American public and even internationally. But there are also these, you know, the Civil War sites, the the Revolutionary mm-hmm. War sites, the the various eras of Cesar Chavez, Rosie the Riveter, the internment camps where the Japanese Americans were sent, you know, in early, early days of the world war, of world war two. And, and so, so I, I, am proud of the national park service today and what it represents uh, as far as, again, you know, what America is and, 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 but America's evolving, <laughs> uh, fortunately, um, mostly in good ways. And so, you know, there may be different types of sites in the future. Now, you can add them all up and say, okay, there's 417 national park sites and there's one in every state. And, you know, there's the 
you know, the 12 to 15 million acre sites of Alaska to the Yellowstones and, and so forth and so on. I, you know, I still I think that this, you know, my, my personal feeling and my professional feeling tells me that there's still a lot of land that needs to be set aside. And and, you know, tall grass prairie areas, you know, uh, places in um, the Intermountain West. Um, wouldn't it be great to have? I think it would be great. And it's been talked about. But basically have basically somewhat uninterrupted public land for the purpose of the migration of wildlife and natural processes from right. know, Grand Teton National Park up through Yellowstone all the way up the glacier and into Waterton Park in Canada. Incredible idea. I think we can do it. I think this country can do that. Um, so that's an example of where it may not be a, uh, a series of national parks under the traditional national park designation. But on the other hand, it can be a combination of uh, state and federal land that receives equal protection and is managed in such a way that uh, it becomes that connected, which is now not connected, you know, ecosystem, more than one ecosystem. And I, and I think that it also, uh, the future holds a promise for private landowners as well. You know, the idea of conservation easements, um, the old ranch family that's been around for six generations and wants to keep keep it like it was. I think that's a relatively new thing in the history of, of land management in the national in, in this country. Um, large tracts of land being set aside in conservation easement is really 30, 40 years old at best as an idea. And it's growing. Um, and there's there's practical reasons for that, including inheritance taxes, you know, and things like that. But, you know, I, I see other countries doing it as well. Um, so I think we need a lot more land that is set aside uh, for natural and cultural purposes um, in this in this country. Yeah. And I'm glad you called out, you know, we we often get stuck in talking about the the dozen or so main attractions of the national park system, but they have 417 that not only speak to natural resources, but have that cultural and historical presence is what provides the national park system, that portfolio to to be proud of wherever and whoever you come from. Um, to have some sort of connection to our land, so it's a it's a great call out. It's it's worth repeating, um, being that we get stuck only because you worked at Yellowstone, Steve. Did we talk about Yellowstone this much? <laughs> uh, you, oh, you could have worked for Rosie the Riveter, and then we would have just talked about but that that place for a while. But yeah, it's a great call, and I'm glad you mentioned it because if if not, I would have definitely mentioned it myself. I would I would love to end with my favorite segment of all. Uh, which is called Trails and L's, being that I find that the outdoors landscape is often intertied with uh, the local breweries in the area and or that beer culture. It seems everybody that I know walks eight miles and does a day hike and then somehow ends up at a brew pub. So I would love to know, I know you're from uh, or you're currently living in, in Driggs, Idaho. I would love to know your favorite trail and or ale from from your local brew pub that that people need to check out when they're in your area. Well, I'm glad to be part of the culture that you described. Yeah. Um, and uh, so uh, a fairly new trail to me is the Teton Canyon. And so we look from where I live, we will actually look 
at the west face of the Grand Teton. Mm. Um, and about, about the top thousand feet of it. But we look at the Teton range, what I call the West flank. Um, I can li- you know, I basically look into Grand Teton National Park. We're about three quarters of a mile from the Idaho Wyoming border. Um, and there are some resources that I'm familiar with before we moved here that are part of Grand Teton and, uh, the Caribou Targhee National Forest as well. So incredible natural resources at our doorstep. So the Teton Canyon Trail, I've skied on cross-country skis as well as hiked with my wife and one of my sons. And uh, because of a little more moisture on this side of the the range, as well as a few less people, um, I don't want to gloat about that too much. Um, (laughs) It's it's a great, um, gentle for the first three or four mile trail. And then you start to gain an elevation to get up uh, and heading towards uh, the grand, you know, the, the grand, the middle Teton and the South Teton and places like Alaska Basin, which are phenomenal. So anyway, um, basically you're hiking um, up into the Teton range. Um, you hike mostly through the Caribou Targhee or the Targhee National Forest. Alaska Basin is in the National Forest, but it's adjacent to. Uh, I would characterize it as if you're standing on top of the Grand, you look to the um, essentially to the east and slight southeast, and you're looking down into what's called Alaska Basin, which is this incredible glacial cirque that was created, and it's just phenomenal. And um, we did, uh, like I said, some short hikes. And then my son and I did a little more of a grunt where we actually had to traverse some snow fields last summer and uh, got within almost reach out and be able to touch the Grand from the west side. And uh, it was, uh, I'll I'll characterize it as a a lifetime experience. Uh, I plan to be up there again this summer um, and ramble around more in the Alaska Basin. the great thing is that uh, at the end of the day, or actually the next day, um, yeah. we um, uh, Teton Valley, Idaho, uh, has Teton Brewing. Uh, that's the beer they pour at Music on Main, which every Thursday evening has live music and local brew uh, and food trucks. And it and we experienced it last year, the day after we, my son and I did this climb for the first time and. It's, it's just a great social event. Um, you know, these are people that, you know, spend a lot of time mountain biking that day or hiking up in the in the, the Targhee and the Teton. And, and so anyway, um, I love being part of that culture, having the microbreweries, the, the local brew pubs, um, both reaching out to the community at something like Music on Main, as well as them being available for those that have spent the day sweating a little bit or a lot and enjoying yeah. this natural environment. They just kind of go hand in hand, like you said, and thank goodness it's here. Absolutely. So what's your, what's your go-to beer when you get down to, to music on Maine or the, the Teton brew pub? Is there a recommendation you got? Well, I'd have to say it's uh it's uh, Teton breweries 208, which is the area okay. code for Idaho 208. They have some other good ones um, and as well, but that's my favorite. So anyway, I would highly recommend Teton Brewing 208. 
Good. And then you got the the Teton Canyon hikes. Now, you know, in 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 a year or so when this podcast just blows up, Steve, you're going to have, you know, a, an extra thousand people there because of that. And so everybody can can thank you for attracting so many people to the Driggs area. <laughs> well, we can handle it. Good. We may be small, but we are mighty. Well, I'm definitely going to have to check it out when next time I'm out there. I, I have a few few hikes earmarked for the Tetons already. So uh, excited to have chatted with you. Uh, thanks for joining the podcast here in its first season and giving us a, a good perspective on what it was like to to join the national park system, how you bounced around a little bit, and just a, a good kind of future perspective as well. So I appreciate, appreciate your time. Well, Steve. Riley, thank you. And thank you for asking me to share it. And you know you have a place to stay for as long as you want when you come out to hike these trails. Nice. And story time with Steve. It's a developing idea. It's workshopped right now. So we'll we'll see what comes of that too. Excellent. Cool. Thanks, Steve. Thank you, Riley. You take care. 